Welcome back to the Weekly Trusted Visions podcast. As we start a new month, the team was brainstorming earlier this week of what monthly topic would resonate well with both financial professionals as well as financial advisors, OSJs, and enterprises. And I think this topic not only relates well with all of those people, but I think it also relates well with owners and presidents and CEOs of broker-dealers because collectively and on average, we've all been in this industry for 20 or so years. And I know when I first started the industry, everybody wanted to be with that small broker-dealer where it was a family feel and you had access to top-level executives and you could call the operations people and they knew you by name and they knew about your family. And that's evolved through private equity coming into the industry and swallowing up broker-dealers, the consolidation that's continued, the regulatory environment. We had DOL and then that didn't go through. Then we had Reg BI and, and that's being implemented. And the consolidation has only continued. So this month's topic, we're going to call past, present, and future. And what I mean by that is, what does the future hold for the industry as it's, as a whole? And how, how do you as a financial advisor or financial professional plan for that? So we're going to subtopic this week's topic into a few different sections. And we're going to start with Deb. Deb, you've been with small broker-dealers, large broker-dealers. You've been with broker-dealers. I remember when I first met you with broker-dealers that closed their doors unexpectedly. And so, you know, small broker-dealers, I, I strongly believe they have a place in this industry and will continue to have a place. But as a financial advisor, OSJ, or enterprise, or even a president and CEO or owner of those small BDs, can you talk a little bit about how that has changed over the last 20 years in terms of remaining relevant and, and your opinion of where you see those small broker dealers having a place, understanding that technology is very important to stay relevant, that the regulatory environment's only going to continue to get tougher. And then you have interest rates that have drastically dropped, which is causing revenue loss. Can you talk a little bit about where you see those small broker dealers fitting in going forward? You bet, Jeremy. Um, yeah, I love this topic. And, you know, for me, looking back over 20 years, there's been so much change, or even when I got into this, uh, again, 30 years ago, I liked reflecting back on, on where we were when I, I got into this industry, uh, starting out as a wirehouse broker, uh, you know, with a formidable firm, and then going independent uh, with a, a now a well-known independent firm, you know, in, in my hometown. So there's been a lot of change. And I would say that over, I was, I was trying to think of, of, look back on some numbers, you know, I mean, over the past, probably around 2007 is we had probably the most independent firms we had, and I'll get to the small one, but I, you know, just kind of as, as some number things. And I think there was like, you know, 1.5,892 1 firms to where we're at you know, in 2000, today, probably a little less than 3,500, right, of, of registered firms and, you know, around, you know, 600,000, you know, advisors. And I think when I got into this business from an independent standpoint, I don't, I don't know, maybe there was like 350. Um, I hate to even think back that far. But, and the independent broker dealer, not let alone a small, the small firm, but even the independent space, 
um, was just still, you know, kind of coming into play, right? I mean, coming out of the warehouse world, I was thinking to myself, who who are these independent? <laughs> what are these independent firms, right? So I know you said, you know, keep this short. We don't have like five hours for me to reminisce on the past, which just, again, takes me back. But you know, there were there were firms that were really making a mark, you know, back in the beginning. And um, I chose to be with a, a smaller firm um, because I liked what you were talking about, Jeremy, that feel of, of being a part of something, being able to pick up the phone, you know, have advisors pick up the phone and be able to talk to somebody that they knew. And, you know, over the years, that just continued to change, right? You hit, went from the 90s, you went, you know, to the, the 2000s. You know, um, you went to all of a sudden banks getting into the space. You it got you know more insurance firms that were getting into the space and acquiring and acquiring firms. Then you started seeing all of the regulation come into play, and and as all this played out, you know you hit you hit 2010 or even even before, and all of a sudden you start seeing the consolidation, right? Because then you have these small firms which. People may think of a small firm and, and gauge it differently. Um, I remember at one point, you know, Finner saying, you know, small firms are like 150 reps, right? Um, I might say that it's about 250 less mid-sized firm, you know, being anywhere from 500 to 1,000. And, and Jerry, you guys may, may disagree, but that's kind of how I see because of you look at the large firms that have 12,000 advisors, right? So you kind of have to gauge that. <clears throat> but as as increased regulations, like what you said, um, market volatility, right? What back, what happened back in the day? Um, interest rates, market volatility, the economy, everything putting pressure on the smaller firms. All of a sudden, and not just and not just small firms, um, bank firms, insurance firms, right? Kind of all of the regulations and all those things affect all the firms. But what it what it does, and it pushes consolidation. And who can survive that consolidation, or who can survive all that cost, the regulatory cost, right? And it's going to be the larger firms. And so, what you saw happening was the consolidation, smaller firms being forced um, into having to be acquired or sell um, because they got you know got in trouble with something, um, not being able to you know keep net capital requirements, for instance, you saw, you know, a lot of firms going, okay, we can't meet net capital requirements. So all those things that, you know, pushed, you know, I, I would say pushed, right, you know, kind of those, those smaller firms into just saying we can't, we can't do this anymore. Um, or the insurance owned firms that said, uh, you know what, while we thought this was a, a great thing to acquire these broker dealers back in the day, Right. All of a sudden, we've got all this regulatory and we did it to have a platform, honestly, for our products. Right. And all of a sudden, uh, number one, reps are independent. So they're not necessarily selling those insurance products. And then you have all the cost. And so you've just got these firms saying we've got to you know, we've got to get out of this. And it's continuing. That was then we've got where we're at now with, again, continued consolidation of the smaller firms, firms going out of business, the insurance firms, one firm, insurance firm recently sold to another. I know we don't talk names independent. Um, you know, the formidable firm, formidable firm I was part of, one of them um, is part of a, a really big group, right? So you've got these bigger groups that can get the scale in the economy. They need to be competitive, right? Because that's kind of now where we're at. Can the small firms, the smaller firms, 
meet those, you know, that, that competition. There may be some that can, um, and I know that there are some that will, um, but, you know, my thought process going forward is if you just take a look at economics, if you take a look at, at where the industry is going, continued regulation, that's not going away. What's been the one constant thing, right, you know, to everybody, the constant thing over the past, as long as we've been in the, this industry that you can rely on and you can guarantee is that there's always going to be more regulation. Right. Yeah. And I, um, think, I, I think, Deb, with that, I mean, and I think that's great from the perspective of with advisors and, and OSJs and enterprises. I, I actually am working with a client right now. It's a two person broker dealer. And we we try collectively as a team to do a good job of not insulting or assuming anything, but really guiding advisors and even owners of those small broker dealers of, hey, no disrespect, but you as a two, five person broker dealer are likely not going to survive with the regulatory environment. And it's better to start your due diligence now to where you're not doing a fire sell. And even with broker dealers with 50 advisors, you know, it's better to do your due diligence and find who your acquirer would be to help with retention purposes rather than doing a fire sell and just going out and selling to the highest bidder. A prime example of that, I worked with a client probably six, seven years ago. And, you know, he, he was looking at a few different firms and he chose the highest bidder and he and I had developed a pretty strong relationship. And six months later, I went to him and said, Hey, I'm just curious, you know, cause he stepped away from the business. I'm just curious looking back, was it the right decision? And he said, Jeremy, I got to tell you, if I had to do it all over again, that was the worst decision I ever made because my reputation was tarnished by all of the advisors within my broker dealer because it wasn't the right fit for him. So good point to that. For for sake of time, Sean, I want to kick it over to you. And, and it was funny. Um, I found it really interesting when we were talking, brainstorming earlier this week, um, when we were talking about technology and how can small broker dealers stay relevant in the technology offering, especially in today's times with COVID, where financial advisors have really relied heavily on technology to serve their clients. And, and you made a great point, and I don't want to steal your thunder, but you made a great point of some of those small broker dealers that you've either been a part of or know of have much better functioning technology than some of the larger firms it just doesn't have the flash or the pizzazz, so to speak, as those. Can you speak, you know, going forward, how you see small broker dealers staying relevant in technology and, and what advisors, OSJs, or enterprise should look for? Sure, sure, sure. First of all, thank you for having me this morning. And uh, it's a great topic of discussion. In terms of uh, technology, I mean, it's no secret that technology is rapidly evolving just in every business sector and including personal. You know, I don't know what iPhone number we're on now. I don't know if it's iPhone 14, 15. I'm still on, I think 10 maybe, I'm not sure. But the uh, it's rapidly evolving, especially, you know, in the independent broker dealer space and keeping up with those technologies can be a challenge for smaller broker dealers. Now I wanna preface my comments by saying that smaller broker dealers in my Estimation is sub 300. 
I consider sub 300 a smaller broker dealer. And it is a fact, you know, and I'll get to your point in a second, Jeremy, yeah. but it is a fact that larger broker dealers are essentially in better position to provide advisors with the tools and resources they need to be successful. And these systems include branch office, uh, you know, compliance systems, uh, performance reporting, uh, portfolio and client management systems, uh, supervision systems. And these are very important for the efficiency of an office. If an office is able to lean on these efficiencies from technology, that puts them in a better position to recruit, uh, which is why we're here. Uh, it takes it takes time away from doing the, the the heavy lifting because you can place that on the technology where they can uh, you know entertain our calls and speak to our prospects, but also retention. Uh, you know you, you need those technologies to retain your you know existing advisor base, and not only does the advisor need cutting edge technology, the broker dealer does as well. And I'll give you a real life example. So six years ago. I recruited a small broker dealer to uh, the broker dealer I represented at the time, consider a larger firm. I recruited this small broker dealer. I remember when I initially spoke to the president of this firm and his number one pain point was technology. He said, Sean, you know, I am looking, hey, listen, we've been in business for over 15 years. We are profitable. However, for me to get to the level from a technology standpoint, I need to get to, it would exhaust all of our resources. I'm not doing any service to my advisors when they can go to a larger firm and tap into resources to, that can help them grow. I don't have that. My CRM at the home office level is Microsoft Excel. Wow. And that is not going to get it done while in this, the president of this broker dealer, Jeremy Sharp, uh, you know, very, I mean, he's, I highly respect him to this day. Um, his filing capabilities were great. However, even when we were negotiating and doing the deal, the amount of Excel spreadsheets he had to provide me with was, needless to say, overwhelming. So he was able to, and this could be a, a topic of discussion for another day, but he was able to integrate his broker-dealer as a large sub-OSJ with a larger firm. And it worked out for him. He was able to retain the culture of his firm but he was also able to find a solution for his issue, which was technology. Um, now, to, to your to your point you just made, I have had the opportunity, the great opportunity to work with a number of broker dealers in the industry from small to mid-sized to large. And because of the new cloud-based technologies that are continually to evolve, some mid-sized firms, which is one I represented prior to uh, joining Trusted Visions, have been able to tap into that market. So because you have additional resources. Listen, it may not be, uh, this broker dealer did not have, you know, maybe necessarily the uh, the bells and whistles that you would have at one of some of the larger firms. However, in terms of efficiency, they were more efficient, I, I would argue, than some of the larger firms because they were able to, you know, levelize with some of the uh, cloud-based technologies that were rolling out. So I do think that technology is, is very important. However, the fact remains that if you have resources, uh, if you if you can balance your economies of scale, uh, you have a better chance at receiving that technology, or an advisor has a better chance of receiving that technology they need to be successful. Yeah, and, and I mean, two two points to that is you know when you start seeing news, and I just read an article this morning of a broker dealer. It, I would consider it a mid sized broker dealer was just fined fifteen plus million dollars. 
when you see those with those small and mid-sized broker dealers, as a financial advisor, OSJ or enterprise, you need to really start digging under the hood of what is their excess net cap. And right. with yeah. this fine, how much leeway does it give us? And, and I'd be interested, in, I'm going to make a comment and give my opinion, and I'd be interested in you two, you know, of your opinion of when I'm having conversations with OSJs, enterprises, financial advisors, and they say, hey, I'm not necessarily unhappy with my broker dealer. My suggestion to them is, okay, that's fine, but should you have a problem where that broker dealer get into regulatory harm's way three months from now, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you and your advisors are going? And if not, at least formulate a plan B. And that plan B doesn't mean you have to go to the home office visit. You have to, you know, dig into everything, but have that introductory call, do a technology and advisory demo, say, hey, if I was to join XYZ broker dealer, what would your offer be today? Understanding it may change. Um, That's always my advice to clients. I'd be interested, agree, disagree, Deb, thoughts on, on that comment? No, I agree. I, I couldn't add anything. I think it's it's a, a mess that you need to do that. You've got to have a plan B. Sean? No, absolutely. The unfortunate reality in our business, essentially the independent broker-dealer space, is that all of the firms from large to small operate on a very pencil-thin margin. And when you don't have the, the, the large economies of scale, you're only a customer complaint or, or lawsuit away from going out of business. I've seen it happen. I've been doing this for 20 years, not to name any firms, but I've seen many firms that from a reputational standpoint were solid. However, you know, just a complaint or an issue just really took them under. Yeah, I mean, look at what happened with, I think this was 2009, 2010, Medical Capital and Provident. That product put, I don't know how many broker dealers out of business, but it put a lot of them in harm's way. And my, my suggestion to those watching this podcast is, is a couple. A, for president CEOs and owners of small broker dealers, explore those plan Bs. And for advisors, OSJs, and enterprises, my, my feedback or suggestion to you would be, if you go to a firm like Trust Divisions or even go directly to a broker dealer and say, hey, I just want to formulate a plan B. If they're really pushing you to get you into a home office visit and, and push you further than you're ready, other than just putting together a plan B, as David mentioned mentioned last month on last month's topic of working with third-party recruiting firms, that's not the firm you want to work with. I'm working with a couple clients right now that they said, hey, I don't want to be pushed to make a decision. I just really want to explore my options. And I went to the recruiter within that broker dealer and I said, look, I don't want you asking this individual for anything. And so my suggestion to financial advisors, OSJs, and enterprises is if you're truly just looking for a plan B, if the firm that is representing you is pushing you, then that's not the firm for you. So anything to add, Deb and Sean, before we we close out this week's? I'm good. Perfect. This is a good topic. Well, we look forward to continuing. I I, I made up the topic myself for this month of past, present, and future. I, I look forward to continuing down this topic for the rest of the month. Sean, Deb, thank you very much. And I hope everybody enjoyed this. Should you have any questions, please don't hesitate to to email us at info at trustedvisions.com. We look forward to hearing from you.